It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. In 2020, events have yet again shone a light on racial inequalities across the globe. Australia is not an exception. 20 years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now. These comments are completely inappropriate. I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. Hello and welcome to another episode of Democracy Sausage with me, Mark Kinney from the ANU's Australian Studies Institute. And perhaps now's a good time to mention our Australia and the World annual lecture. I'm delighted to say this is coming up on Wednesday, September 30th. So if you're listening to this podcast before then, and you may in fact be listening to it later, but if you were listening to it before then, can I alert you to the fact that this year for the first time, this will be broadcast live on ABC TV and Sky. Uh, So wherever you are around the country, you'll be able to watch this important lecture, which is being given by the universally admired Indigenous elder and tireless administrator, leader and public advocate, Pat Turner AM. She's titled her lecture, The Long Cry of Indigenous Peoples to be Heard, A Defining Moment in Australia. And I think it promises to be a really important lecture. Uh, here, after altogether, we had the uh, rather too swift dismissal of the Uluru Statement from the heart in 2017. And this year, when Ms Turner has been so instrumental in leading and redrafting the expansion of Closing the Gap targets, and of course, the Black Lives Matter movement has surged to the fore this year as well, I can't think of a more urgent, more constructive national project than the one she's going to be talking about. So that's Pat Turner at the National Press Club, lunchtime this week on Wednesday. So now to today, where we have a perspicacious panel to discuss the politics of pandemics and recovery. And we'll even get to voter attitudes in the ACT election, which is coming up on October 17. And Dr. Maria Taflaga from the School of Politics and International Relations. That's also the day it strikes me just now of the New Zealand election, which we've discussed on this podcast before. So we must remember to uh, check in on that race sometime in the next fortnight or so. Yes, we do. Always very interesting to hear what's happening in New Zealand politics where Jacinda Ardern 
certainly from outward appearances has been uh, the dominant figure and, of course, there's been chaos on the other side of politics. I think they've now had three opposition leaders, which is not what you'd call the ideal preparation going into an election. No, and I think they've actually had three this year, which is uh, an impressive <laughs> feat even for um, a sort of slightly more chaotic party system in New Zealand. Um, and I think the current uh, uh, incumbent opposition leader, whose name actually completely escapes me, how terrible. Well, I think it probably completely escapes most voters. So it's yes. entirely justified that someone on this side of uh, the ditch, as they call it, uh, is not remembering and I'm not remembering it either. But uh, as you say, with th- with such a rapid turnover, three opposition leaders in, in, in one year, it's hardly surprising and that doesn't really position her well. No, no, she's an ex-police officer as well. So it, it is a it is a sort of uh, the two major parties are both represented by women, which will be an interesting – and I think it is a first in New Zealand politics as well to have the two major – prime ministerial candidates be, be women. So it would be an exciting election for, for many uh, reasons. Isn't it interesting, though, that, that that is that situation where there is two women sort of contesting the, the prime ministership? And this is a country that is now on its third female prime minister, uh, which is also, uh, you know, suggests that in some ways their political culture is um, – more advanced than ours. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, we could we can kind of point directly to um, just the changes that have been made to the party system in New Zealand, which generally mean that you have more parties um, in the mix, and that is generally correlated with more female candidates. Generally, so that doesn't surprise me. But I think it also goes to what Jacinda Ardern said to I think Julia Gillard in her in her latest book, which was that yeah, it did actually matter that there had been female leaders before her and that it made a big difference even if she was the first to to be a mother or to give birth uh, in the role. And, of course, we're sitting here in the ACT uh, where there's been certainly a female chief minister, there have been a few of them, um, uh, but uh, it's only one day after the sad news of the passing of former Labor Minister, Senator Susan Ryan, and indeed she was senator for the ACT, an absolute trailblazing right. uh, um, feminist who was responsible for the Sex Discrimination Act and uh, and uh, was a great champion of women's rights all through her career, but also she was, as I say, the first female Labor Minister federally, which is um, groundbreaking right, yes. in itself. She was instrumental, actually, to getting women onto the agenda. So, so Susan Ryan, um, you know, tried to run for politics a little bit uh, earlier in 1975 from from memory, and she didn't. She wasn't able to um, win that vote, but she impressed a lot of the sort of uh, factional heavies, I suppose you'd call them then, by uh, coordinating all of these women to sort of join the Labor Party, and then effectively acted as kingmaker, picking who did win, and so this brought her to the attention of uh, sort of Labor higher ups, and in that that sort of led to her becoming effectively like an advisor to the Federal Council on Women's Policy. And in that role, she essentially argued that women should be sort of central rather than just some random appendage to Labor's agenda. And she was really crucial, actually, in sort of seeing that decline in the liberal share of the women's vote, which had until that time been you know, absolutely dominant. So Susan Ryan's legacy, not only as age discrimination commissioner, not only in bringing forward the Sex Discrimination Act, um, was really um, quite a profound one for how we live today. And so, yeah, we should all we should all just take a small moment to, to thank her for that. Yeah, indeed we should. And uh, she was, of course, also education minister, which was an even bigger ministry relative to other portfolios than it is today, as I understand it. Uh, and she 
presided over in that in that portfolio through a period when there was quite a, a, a deal of reform, including massive expansion, really, of um, of the university sector uh, and you know higher retention um, retention rates of of, of schools. Uh, which then fed into the university sector and which, of course, uh, John Dawkins, uh, subsequent minister, presided over those changes to uh, introduce the Higher Education Contribution Scheme. Which we know as HECS. Which we know as HECS and um, and which some people hate but which um, nonetheless uh, had at its heart uh, the idea that you would only pay for your education when you achieved a certain level of income that you could afford to pay it back. So some people would have uh, continued on uh, with free education, particularly those who didn't finish. Yeah, um, a lot of a lot of people serving in politics right now, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Just, just make that point. Um, so also with us is Emeritus Professor John Warhurst, also from the School of Politics and International Relations. He's a particular favourite of Democracy Sausage. John, welcome back from uh, a remote location down the coast. Thanks, Mark. It's a, it's a pleasure. Can I also just mention, among the things that Susan Ryan did, she was Deputy Chair of the Australian Republican Movement, and I worked with her in that in that movement, and it just shows how wide her influence was in very many community groups over, the, over her lifetime. That's a really good point to make, actually, John, because I was listening to Wendy McCarthy and former Governor-General Quentin Bryce, both very great friends of Susan Ryan, talking with Geraldine Dugan, another friend, of Susan Ryan uh, this morning, really only talking, you know, a day after she's she suddenly died, suddenly passed away after a, you know coming out of the uh, out of the surf, she was swimming and and, and collapses and 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 uh, it ends rather quickly and it's very shocking to everyone. But um, the points that uh, particularly Wendy McCarthy was making, I think that um, Susan Ryan was uh, not just someone with a great work ethic, but someone with a real flair for bringing people along for. Um, making, um, bring, you know, building a community around an idea and really sort of drawing others into action as well. And, uh, that's a great, uh, a great attribute, I think, particularly for someone interested in reform. And she has a, had a very proud record of reform that she could point to. And finally, Sarah Ison. Now, Sarah Ison is a uh, political correspondent with the West Australian. It's welcome back to you, Sarah, because you also have been on Democracy Sausage before, and uh, you're just, uh, I guess, lining up somewhat nervously for your uh, first budget. Yeah, next budget. week's going to be a big one and a very different one for everyone. Even those people who've done many budgets for for years, it's going to look completely different because of COVID nineteen. Yeah, well, I think I worked out that uh, I'd done fifteen or sixteen of these lockups and um there's not going to be the same sort of lockup this no. year because uh, it's the it's the opposite thing that you would do with uh, with covid is to put everyone in these airless rooms for 8 hours or mm. 6 hours and uh, feed them sandwiches. bad sandwiches and have them all <laughs> you know stale biscuits and uh, and uh, you know have everyone sort of leaning into everyone else and whispering and and working Making sure away you're on the right track for sure and now it's going to be a reduced time frame as well and it's going to be one of you know the most historically significant budgets probably in, in quite some time but at a you know in a reduced time frame um, not having your peers around you kind of thing so it's going to be really interesting definitely nerve-wracking and daunting I can say that but, but it's really a good point you make about the peers because one of the things that journalists uh, uh, who work in the gallery where I've worked uh, for so long um, know is that uh, when you have the the budget lockup 
you get the hierarchy from your media organization. If it's a newspaper, you know, it'll be the editor and, uh, and a whole bunch of others. Um, you know, senior people will come to Canberra. And so there's, you know, there, there's an interesting dynamic that happens on the day. You're in there with all of these people, people you often deal with on the phone quite a lot, but mm-hmm. uh, in some cases have never even seen if you're a Canberra correspondent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are, there's a vast number of people in, in these places. You know, the Australian has a whole room to itself virtually or nearly. Um, and, uh, you know, there are hundreds of people from all these different media organisations and uh, it's it's a kind of, um, I don't know, it's hard to describe. It's uh, it, it's sort of low oxygen after a while because it's not particularly well ventilated, as I say, exactly what you don't want in a COVID situation. It's like a quiet library exam festival. It, it is. It, yeah. has the, it has the sort of, it has the kind of threatening atmosphere of an exam in the sense that, you know, there's a certain amount of risk of what you miss, you know, yeah. so there's a lot of anxiety there. You can almost cut it with a knife. Yeah. Uh, and the clock's ticking down, but you're there from one thirty or 2 o'clock when you go in until 7.30 exactly. when the yeah. when the treasurer gets to his or her feet, in this case his feet, um, uh, at the dispatch box to deliver the budget, at which point everyone's let out, but, you know, they've already written their copy and, mm-hmm. and that's the way it works. Well, it's going to be different this year. Yeah, um, wish me luck. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm going to be doing a bit of it myself, actually. Yeah. But um, yes, oh. well, I'll, yeah. But as you say, it'll be different. It's not going to be everyone together. All the bureaus mm. are going to be uh, separately uh, doing their thing. But there'll be confidentiality provisions in exactly the same way. So. Yeah. But it will be a lower key affair. I think what's more interesting about it, though, is the budget itself. I mean, mm. this is a this is a dramatically different situation from that which anyone expected. Mm. Of course, and uh, and we've got a government that's really gone through Maria quite a, a shape shift um, in order to to deal with this. Uh, you know, we've had the the treasurer last week making the point in a big speech that it's going to be all about jobs. It's going to have two phases, but the first phase of of the government policy, which let's face it, will take it past the next election, likely to be around this time next year. But even if it's a bit later. Um, we're talking about um, a government that's saying it's all going to be about jobs and stimulus for the economy on promoting growth, not about budget repair, even though the budget is in a deeper state of deficit than we've ever seen. Yeah, and uh, this is reassuring to, to hear really because, of course, one of the easiest ways to repair the budget, and I'm not suggesting this is not going to take decades, um, is is effectively to, to grow the economy uh, because that increases your, your tax take and it also just increases the amount of wealth the country generates and it means that your debt is a lower proportion of that, which makes it easier to pay to pay off without having to, to sort of rejig and, and cut services. But I think, Mark, what you're really alluding to is, I guess, the sort of major sort of psychological and rhetorical shift of the government, which, of course, gave us the wonderful debt and deficit disaster, which is a fun tongue twister, say that 20 times. Um, And, you know, to now moving on to sort of ignoring the deficit to focus on uh, returning back to normal. And this is, frankly, I think reassuring uh, because the alternative, it would just be completely bonkers. Um, so without wanting to like overly congratulate the, the government for doing something innately sensible, it is a relief, I'm sure, to all of us. John, governments in the past when they've been faced with situations of big deficits, either as new governments or in the aftermath of um, uh, you know downturns, recessions, however you want to describe them, have engaged in 
quite particularly conservative governments have engaged in quite aggressive austerity programs. Uh, we've seen that in a number of different countries. That's what's different here, isn't it? This government is signalling right up front there isn't going to be an austerity program, at least not a severe one. It's all going to be about, as Maria said, down the track trying to have growth do the budget repair rather than uh, severe spending cuts. But in the meantime, political logic but also economic logic suggests that the government's just going to have to be intervening very strongly in the market. Uh, we already know the economy's 6% smaller than it was. That's the latest uh, economic information that's come out of, of uh, the Bureau of Statistics. So uh, the government's really doing the only thing that makes sense. Yeah, I think I think that's right, Mark. I mean, I suppose speaking from a university, um, we we are aware of a little bit of austerity uh, coming coming our way. <laughs> Good point. Uh, and also, job keeper and job seeker. I suppose there's element of winding back of those programs. But but in terms of you know, getting the economy back on track, um, it does seem to be a a different sort of approach from a from a conservative government. Like Maria, I you know I think it's welcome. Um, what it says about the government's ideological position, I think, is not immediately obvious to me because I think the um, the ways we look at it as observers of politics, um, you know, backflips or um, full-blown Keynesianism, these are categories that perhaps don't mean as much to the average voter. And, and, and I think some of what we're seeing perhaps is if it just seems sensible to the average person in the street, then that's a, then that's a good thing. Um, and I was just finished reading um, Catherine Murphy's The End of Certainty, um, Scott Morrison's and Pandemic Politics, and that left me even more confused about just <laughs> where to put uh, not Catherine's analysis, but what she had to say about Scott Morrison and his refusal. Well, one of the things she said. That, one of the things she said, John, was that the more you look at Scott Morrison, the less you think you know. Yeah. I and mean, that was actually one of the well, comments she made. In that's this. certainly true with with me. You know, the mix of of faith and his marketing background and uh, his refusal to see even even to accept the term bipartisanship, uh, but rather just to see it as as government in action or pra- pragmatic government me- meeting the needs of the community as he sees them at the uh, at the time. So. Um, I mean, I think he just uses right. that there's as a, a clever a device. interesting going on. Um, it's it's just how you describe it, which I'm not sure about at the moment. And perhaps we shouldn't worry about descriptions too much and just um, uh, see how it all works out. Yeah, it's an interesting point, Sarah. What John's referring to there in terms of Morrison resisting the uh, the labelling of being progressive. In fact, at one point in that essay, the the Catherine Murphy quarterly essay. Um, Morrison is quoted as, as saying something along the lines of, you know, progressives misread our intervention into the economy. Um, we, we, you know, we, we're spending this money not because we've suddenly, you know, become something we're not. We're doing what needs to be done in the interests of the economy. And I think that tells you a, a fair bit about Scott Morrison. Everyone's making this point that he's more pragmatic than perhaps he was expected to be. He's less of an ideologue than some of his predecessors. But he's also very, as John said, he has a marketing background and he's very conscious of how he's packaged up. And he it's like he wants to do both things here. He knows he needs to use the budget to protect the economy, but he's also talking to his party room. 
He doesn't want to be seen as some sort of uh, new version of Malcolm Turnbull or some sort of moderate. He wants to be seen as essentially mainstream liberal. So he's doing what needs to be done but resists even praise from you know, what you might call the centre-left uh, for um, you know, for becoming, as John said, a sort of a you know new Keynesian. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, whenever he kind of fronts the the press and has different questions about, you know, straying from or, or flipping ideologically or, or or anything like that, there's there's a really quick shutdown to this is beyond politics. We're, we're in a time where this it's yeah. not about politics, it's not about ideology, and that's something that I think I've heard like dozens of times in the last few months, and it's really interesting. To, to hear that and I think the cut through um, with people watching would be would be quite high. I think John nailed it regarding what people actually care about and to hear a politician go, no, no, we're not going to talk about ideology. I just want to talk about what's going to get done, you know. I think that does that does hold, hold weight for people, especially when those words are followed through with, you know, big spending, big policy, things like that. I do find it really interesting, you know, like I said in, in presses when you could start talking ideology and politics, just shut it down immediately. Just not moving on, next question kind of thing. And I find that a really interesting tactic and I wonder what people watching who aren't, you know, directly in the press pact, how they see that. I I imagine, as I said, it would have quite a lot of cut through. Well, I think it's a very clever political rhetorical device because, you know, he says he's not ideological, he says it's all about pragmatism, you know, looking at what works and, um, you know, and there's a degree d- degree of that in, in the design of job keeper and job seeker and so forth. But what is actually, what he's actually really saying is or what he's trying to signal is my position is neutral um, and so therefore if it is neutral, it is not dangerous. And what this does for him is to create sort of space for himself in terms of of decisions that he might make that are radical internally within his own party, uh, but it also allows him to kind of cast these other decisions that he's making for the public that might make them a bit nervous. For example, this bank lending scheme where they're going to loosen the controls, um, you know, again, like, well, you know, this is just something that we have to, to do. But if we actually look at what the coalition has proposed, apart from their emergency measures, and I think that's important, they are emergency responses, um, they, they are they all reflect the, the Liberal Party's worldview and of course they should, right, because they, they are a party of the centre right. So, you know, it, their focus on jobs rather than wage subsidies, the focus on um, increasing uh, or reducing lending standards to promote, uh, you know, investment, um, the fact that we've got this sort of gas intervention thing which is definitely one strand perhaps of an older form of Liberal Party thinking that links back to nationhood, nation building, which John might be interested in talking about. But I think what is going to be very difficult for the government going forward is the conversations we've been having for a very long time. Uh, you know, we spend a lot of money, we spend a lot of taxpayers' money on um, uh, on subsidising on, I guess, these sort of intergenerational um, differences in who's sort of benefiting from the tax system. So, you know, franking credits comes to mind, but so does just frankly the way we tax savings, the most obvious one being negative gearing. And if we're going to talk about austerity, given we have one of the world's most targeted welfare schemes, like there's not that much fat there. Mm. So does this mean the government wants to go there talking about taking away stuff from its own constituents? Will it have to do that? I don't know. Um, but it's also just going to have to spend a lot more on public services because, you know, old people are also their voters and it is a scandal. It's a national scandal. So it, it'd be, 
interesting to see how the budget speech itself is rhetorically kind of framed and what is the long-term plan? Like what does the government consider to be long-term? How, how are they going to set those parameters for themselves? Well, John, I wonder whether they, their long-term plan is, is, is their preoccupation at the moment or perhaps the shorter-term plan of getting through the next election is. Um, if you're a government, as we saw in, in 2008-9, if you're a government that's um, handing money directly to voters, then you're unlikely to be unpopular for that. Uh, and this government has been, you know, reasonably well received around the place for the, the, the coordination that it's brought to the COVID response and all of that uh, extra spending that's gone into the economy. This budget's going to be about continuing that in another form. I mean, as as you said, your job keeper and job seeker are, are being sort of wound down or at least uh, trimmed down. Uh, in the case of job seeker, we'll see what happens to even the trimmed down version uh, at the end of the year, but um, there's no promises being made at the moment. It's a lot of unemployed people, so there's some political significance in all of that. But won't really its logic be about um, keeping as much intervention as it can get in the economy, clever as it will like to make it, um, so that it can um, you know get to the next election and prevail? I think the next. Uh, you're right, Mark. I think the next election is front of mind uh, as it is for. You know, for for most political leaders, um, uh, Scott Morrison might talk about long term issues, but the most important issue for him, I think, is well, firstly, consolidating his own position as as prime minister. We forget how you know previous prime ministers have come and gone very quickly, and I think he his first job was to establish himself a, as a long term liberal leader, and secondly, to do that by winning the by winning the next election. And uh, I think the sort of pragmatism exhibited by Scott Morrison is first and foremost a fairly immediate sort of pragmatism. And uh, I suppose hmm. that's the meaning of the term pragmatism in a way. You're dealing with the circumstances in front of you. And um, I, I think over the next 18 months or so, um, he'll be doing everything, as you would expect, to make sure he comes out on top um, at the next election. I think that means two things, to pick up on Maria's point about He's playing to his own party and his own backbench, and I think he's happy not to be categorised for that reason because as soon as he's categorised or branded uh, as a particular sort of liberal, he'll upset um, someone in his own backbench or even in his ministry, and he has to avoid that because that's what brought down previous uh, liberal leaders. And secondly, I think it makes it extraordinarily difficult for the opposition to know how to respond um, uh, to Scott Morrison's various measures, partly because uh, I think it was Joel Fitzgibbon who was saying, well, Scott Morrison's stolen some of Labor's policies, uh, where at the same time, you know, Mark Butler was was uh, objecting to uh, the new version of, of energy policy. So I think it leaves, it, it holds Scott Morrison in pretty good stead for the next election if he's quietening down his, the people behind him in his own party uh, while at the same time making life difficult to get a coherent response um, out of Labor who don't really know whether to cheer him for some of his uh, um, new directions or to continue to nail him as you know not doing enough in terms of economic stimulus or, or really not doing enough in the energy space either. I, th- I think uh, Scott Morrison has got both... 
both his adversaries, the ones on his own side and the ones on the opposition, uh, pretty much in check just at the moment. That's a really good observation. Let's take a quick break there and come back and continue this discussion in just a moment. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week, we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive, and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Uh, just before the break, John, you were talking about uh, Scott Morrison having um, potential critics in his own side and, of course, the, 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 the natural critics that he has on the other side of the parliament, having them both in a position probably close to where he wants them at the moment, which is, uh, you know, sort of not in a very powerful position and, and, to, and to some extent divided. Nonetheless, we've seen his government actually walk away from some things that the coalition's been known for for a long time. I mean, we saw uh, midweek last week um, the announcement that the NBN is going to now uh, do fibre to the premises. Now, this was a political, you know, war really over a decade about how how Labor's plan was, you know, gold-plated and it cost too much and everything else uh, and that it was building capacity that didn't need to be there. I think at one stage Tony Abbott described it as a, you know, uh, you know, when all said and done, just something for for uh, you know, uh, downloading movies, um, and of course, COVID's come along and shown the the shortcomings of the system. So we've seen uh, the NBN company now preparing to spend four and a half billion dollars, and let's face it, it could well be more, connecting up eight million premises to fibre all the way to the premises. We've also seen. Scott Morrison, the man who waved a lump of coal around in Parliament, adopt gas a couple of weeks ago, and then last week um, his energy minister, Angus Taylor, announces these five areas where they're going to use public funds to essentially favour these potential technologies aimed at getting emissions down. They won't name a 2050 zero emissions target, but but they say out of the side of their mouth they think they'll get there anyway. So you've got and you put that combine that with the budget um you know you've got all, some pretty big areas where the coalition has kind of i think you could argue taken a step to the center now voters might not care about that per se but it does represent a quite significant shape shift on behalf of the government don't you agree maria yeah i do i mean i think scott morrison has i think since the bushfires and perhaps a bit earlier kind of recognized that the politics of uh climate and the environment is getting more and more uh, difficult as uh, their blue ribbon heartlands 
want action on climate change as their major constituency, the business community, Mm. needs a policy framework to make investment decisions, uh, but they're sort of still making coalitions to govern based on regional uh, voters where the nationals are pursuing a very different kind of of politics. But I think – uh, so, so I think you, that's you know you can view some of these things in a very political lens. Like in, in relation to the NBN, um, one of the things that I actually would really like to understand because I don't know the answer to it is, you know, what is what is driving this decision about um, upgrading the network? Like, is it? I'll is tell it, you, it needs to be upgraded. I mean, the, the very reason that Labor was proposing to do it in the first place has been accepted by the government. That's the long and the short of it. They'll, they'll shilly shally around this, and the CEO of NBN Co says, "Well, what we're doing is we're using." Income from having now completed the build of you know using copper to the to the home as the last bit, we're getting income from it. We're turning some of that income back into upgrading, and this is the right way to go. That's half an argument, I think. It doesn't actually explain why they didn't just tell us that was their strategy in the first place. Well, it clearly wasn't their strategy in the first place. I think, <laughs> or they're, you know, they're very. I don't see why you would keep that that sort of secret. I mean, but is it also is it just because you know eventually there's a long term ambition to sell this network and it would just be more valuable I, I don't know but even um, if it would be more valuable it would be more valuable because it works well I mean, yes know. yes that that does that does seem to be important but I think what is actually kind of important to to sort of think about uh, when we ask all of these questions about what the government is doing is well you know let's let's we hear what they say but what is the actual question they've asked so what questions are the government asking or setting itself to answer okay a lot of them seem to be kind of political questions which relate to how do i solve the problem of the climate wars within the internal politics of my political party? How do I satisfy voters um, that I'm actually doing something on climate uh, given that this issue is only getting more salient? You know, how will I win the next election? Policy questions sound a bit different, you know, like what will underpin Australia's future prosperity in a world of change? How will we get there? And like how will we know that they have succeeded? You know, I I, I hear less on the the latter set of Mm. questions and at the moment we're still hearing a lot more in the sort of political set of questions and I guess that reflects the fact that this government didn't expect to win the last election and so it didn't... Well, if it wasn't for COVID, it wouldn't have had an agenda really. I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, it had very little to do other than get tax cuts through which it did. Um, exactly. And then the bushfires came along and then COVID and it really has, you know, changed the uh, changed the challenge for everyone, um, which is not to uh, dismiss, you know, some of the extraordinary work that has been done, um, but uh, it is interesting to think that it was a pretty empty sort of agenda, Sarah, wasn't it? When, yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. I do think it's really interesting to see, you know, in this COVID world exactly how the government has reacted. I, you know, have heard from Scott Morrison and Frydenberg words I never thought I'd I'd hear from the coalition regarding social safety nets and things like that. Yeah. That are just really, mm. you know, it's unprecedented. It's interesting. It does, you know, always beg the question in the parallel universe where COVID never happened, where we'd be now, what would be you know, being addressed and so on um, because it just seems like so much is being triggered or at least pushed along by COVID. I think you mentioned, Mark, um, during this time how much we've seen how inadequate the the sort of the NBN and internet in general has been. There's been a lot of stories from different journalists about a lot of these issues and the working from home culture, how that's pushed things along. Um, so I just think it's really such an interesting time where things have been either triggered or, or sped up 
and what that means for, for the long term. I mean, no one can say, but it's going to be interesting to see. It certainly is. Mark, it's interesting that these two areas we're speaking about are ones that are very close to Malcolm Turnbull's heart. And uh, I seem to have, he's been given a bit of a fresh voice over the last week, week or so. And uh, I imagine he'll continue to, to speak out on these issues. Um, we may mm. even get Tony Abbott spring, springing to the defence of his own uh, of his own government, which I don't think Scott Morrison would um, would welcome that welcome. Uh, replay of the the Abbott Turnbull uh, debate. So that would be neither non ideological or pragmatic. Yeah, I think you're right there, and it's a good point you make about uh, former prime ministers because we've had uh, we've yeah. had a few of them out actually. Yeah, we've I was just Paul about Keating, to say <laughs> Paul Keating out criticising the Reserve Bank for yep. not doing enough to uh, put liquidity into into the economy, yeah, saying that should essentially be buying government bonds at a much higher rate or printing money. Mm. Uh, we've had Malcolm Turnbull calling the uh, the energy plan and the gas part of it uh, crazy. Yep, um, I see. And we've of course had Kevin Rudd uh, claiming always, yeah. <laughs> vindication for um you know for the NBN decision. You know, yeah. Saying, well, what was all the bloody? There's a lot fuss of former about? PMs out. Yeah, I've noticed that looking at looking at the TVs half of the time, going, oh, another former PM. I think Keating was just on this morning. I saw on on, on one of the channels as well. So. Yeah, he was talking about Susan Ryan. Yeah, right, yeah. Career. But like, I, I'm hearing so much from these different leaders and their two cents on different things. It's such an interesting time. It's such a I don't know, like a, a, a melting pot where there's all this policy that, that former leaders are, are are weighing in on and giving their two cents on or saying, hey, I was right about this or, or you know, yeah, it's interesting. Keating on aged yeah. care too. I mean, he's really having a good yep. run at the moment. <laughs> yeah, yes. I, I think what it just sort of says is is that, well, you know, we are seeing the, the end of the politics of prosperity, which mm. is pretty much all we can really – Remember, if you if you really mm. think about it, mm. and the second is is that the pol- decisions that people will be making right now actually really really do matter because mm-hmm. it's not guaranteed that huge revenue windfalls will be coming to sort of wash out poor decisions mm-hmm. um, that might be made uh, because there'll be enough money to go around that most people won't notice. Mm. Yeah, well, and you mentioned one of them before, uh, franking credits. I mean, it was a it was a bad policy that was essentially obscured by the resources boom. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you think about it, John Howard introduces a policy to effectively end, you know, they first had the end of double taxation and then Howard comes along and ends any taxation for this particular class of, of investment. And um, that that is utterly atrocious policy um, and yet it's baked into the economy now. And the reason it was able to be baked in, as you say, Maria, and put, you put it very well, you know, it was essentially sort of washed over by the by the rivers of gold that were coming from the resources boom in the early 2000s. Yeah, which is the point people, I guess, like to make about the, the two Howard governments, which I think is a bit of a simplistic argument, um, but that idea that the first sort of two Howard governments were in a sort of resource-constrained environment, they had to make trade-offs, they had to make difficult decisions, the second last two Howard governments basically just sort of, you know, rolling in a once-in-a-century mining boom, which I think we need to kind of – you need you need to look at a, a graph of this. The last time we had a, a boom like this was the 1880s. Um, so that's that's how long it takes to get another boom of that scale. I, look, I remember seeing the Treasurer Peter Costello come into the Blue Room at Parliament House a number of times with those, you know, mid-year economic fork financial outlooks and, mm-hmm. and, and, and other uh, key economic moments where – Income from resources, royalties from iron ore and other things were just, you know, 
vastly had been vastly underestimated and now there was an extra 16 or you know whatever it was billion dollars that has just suddenly shown up in the budget i mean mm. we're in exactly the opposite terrain now and Precisely. It's, it's bringing some quite interesting political uh, political responses mm. sarah what's your just quickly before we leave this what's your uh, assessment of where the opposition is. It's a difficult time to be in opposition. Yeah, I've, it, I, I, I think it is a really difficult time, and it's been that fight, like fight for relevancy, and especially early, like this year. It's about you can't be seen, I think, as the opposition to be slowing things down or, or or being obstructive, but also, you know, then trying to stay relevant, but then also trying to, you know, you had earlier this year Albo in, in hard hat hats going, you know, we, we, we like mm. the mining and, and coal towns. I, I feel like they're trying to do everything and by doing that, I'm not sure if they're doing anything of really like substance and clarity kind of thing for people to really understand what they're about. And I mean, that's also something that's frustrating, I think, in um, in the press gallery is when you do try to shore that up and have any level of clarity, it's so often, well, we'll let you know at the end of the year, you know, mm. with the with the with the conference or whatever, which is difficult in this year has been so like so pivotal and so important that for at a time when it's so important, I think, to be really clear and really solid on where you stand, where you would go, what you would do, they're going, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll let you know at the end of the year. And I think that yeah, kind of works against them. Yeah, that's a really difficult position to be in. I understand it, though, from a kind of a strategic point of view. They're burnt by the fact that they put so much mm-hmm. policy into the electoral marketplace before the last election. They need to be careful not to overreact to that uh, and and go too far the other way because, they, as you say, they end up sort of not having anything to say all the time because they're always about down the track to announce mm. whatever their policy is. Mm. Um, you know, this is one of the things that uh, Christine Wallace uh, noted in her book, How to Win an Election. She said that Labor had overlearnt the lesson of instability in the in the period that Shorten was the leader and had sort of overcorrected to the point of going for stability above all else, uh, you know, mm-hmm. rather than um, having proper debates about some of the things, which is why they ended up with franking credit policy and other things that were um, that were difficult to explain and there was too much of it and all that sort of stuff. I think they need to be careful now that they don't overreact to what happened in the 2019 poll mm. and leave everything you know go for the you know the old traditional small target strategy and and kind of not have anything to say that said uh, they should be given credit for having put into the uh, public realm some of the things that this government has actually successfully done during this covid yeah. period the key one being of course jobkeeper mm-hmm. i mean they didn't come up with that name but they did very strongly call for uh, wage, wage subsidies, subsidies yeah. and, uh, you know, the government initially rejected that and then when it saw those unemployment cues, mm-hmm. suddenly realised, wow, we've got a major problem on our hands and the, the vision of, of those cues snaking around the corner of people sitting on milk crates and, and just the dislocation of that, I think it sent shutters straight through the government and it realised we have to do mm-hmm. some some really big things. And there have been a few other examples as well. Mm-hmm. Um but it's a difficult time to be in opposition. Yeah, I think extremely difficult. Yeah. Oh, the world is revolutionising itself roughly every twenty-eight days right now. <laughs> so, so, I, I mean, I think I think that the I think the opposition has done quite well with what is, if we were to think about it in card playing terms, a pretty rubbish hand. So, um, I, th- I, you know, I, I, I think that ultimately even though it is sort of, I guess, frustrating for people who are engaged, I can kind of see the the wisdom of 
um, seeing what kind of terrain the government is going to set itself up to fight an election to, and then for the opposition to sort of respond to the terrain on the day rather than what they think it might be now, given mm-hmm. that the world is changing um, so rapidly. I would also just posit that they don't know. <laughs> Which is why they're telling you. We'll tell you later. Yeah, you know. Yeah, there's, um, there's an interesting test coming up uh, because the the what the budget does do is it uh, allows the government to outline where it's going. And mm-hmm. this, uh, you know, people tell me from from close to the uh, the um, decision makers that uh, there's going to be a lot in this budget. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's going to be some. Uh, announcements this week. They're, they're keen to keep the momentum rolling up to the budget. This is the government and there'll be a fair bit in the budget. Um, one of the reasons why some of the things like the um, statement they're going for a jobs first policy rather than um, budget repair, mm-hmm. one of the reasons they put that story out there is because they were very conscious that it was something that would get lost on budget day by virtue of all of the other things that are going to be in the budget. So it's quite telling when you sort of deconstruct when, and and I'd, I'd advise this uh, to uh, to anyone listening. If you're sort of wanting to get a sense of what the budget, how big the budget is going to be, look at the amount of noise you hear about it beforehand from the government. Uh, and if they're releasing what appear to be quite big things, it means there are even bigger things coming in the budget. They generally don't tread on their own lead, as we say in journalism, by releasing it all first and then having nothing to say on Budget Day. For Labor, however, there's also the budget reply speech that comes on the Thursday uh, evening. And that is beamed into the lounge rooms of Australia for those people who switch on and watch. And it is seen by the opposition as a big chance to make some fairly clear statements of values about where they stand in the um, current uh, political economy. And I think uh, we'll, um, we'll get a, a bit of guidance as to how well Albanese is, is able to, I guess, put together a narrative and sell that. Uh, and uh, it, it's it's being seen by Labor as a pretty pivotal moment. There's a fair bit of pressure on the opposition leader, but an opportunity as well. Mark, I think uh, Anthony Albanese ha- has to take that uh, has to take that opportunity. I mean, whatever about keeping your powder dry on policy, you can't uh, actually uh, deal yourself out of the public space altogether. And I think they really do have to take a stand there. I think Jim Chalmers. An ANU graduate, I should say, has, uh, has been battling away pretty well and has got quite a bit of, uh, uh, you know, commentary and publicity. But uh, Anthony Albanese really has to nail it in the budget reply speech. That's a very wise uh, observation to make, John, about Labor. Now, before we go, let's talk about voting advice applications. Now, some of you will know what they are, others won't, but you'll all have heard of Vote Compass, for example. Some of you may have seen Smart Vote at the last election. Uh, the, both of these are what's called voting advice applications, and uh, Smart Vote is one that is um, uh, being uh, pursued and being rolled out for the ACT election, which is currently underway, as I mentioned at the top of the show. Um, so, w- what is Smart Vote? How does it work? How does it differ from Vote Compass? And why do we, uh, you know, why why are we interested in these sorts of things, Maria? You're involved in this um, in this research project, as indeed am I, as indeed is John. Um, so I just thought let's talk about uh, you know uh, what VAAs are and why we do them uh, because it's really quite interesting. Essentially, I'll, I'll, let me frame it, and then yep. uh, you can add to it. Essentially, um, what it is is a, a situation where a voter can go onto the website, can fill in uh, answers to a range of questions. I think there's about thirty five. Um, and 
the program will match your answers to candidates. That's what's different between Smart Vote and Vote Compass. Vote Compass matches you to a party. Um, this is, a, a, we would argue, a level of sophistication a bit deeper where it matches you to a, an individual candidate because the candidates have filled out the surveys themselves and they've also filled out, in some cases, additional comments. And it provides some very interesting results. I mean, you, you may say you may find yourself answering uh, uh, questions about the economy in one way. You may be answering some social policy questions in the other. You may be quite progressive on the environment, but also uh, quite socially conservative, whatever it is. And uh, Smart Vote will tell you who is the candidate best suited to you. And it's really quite a fascinating thing, but it's also interesting to study because it gives us a whole lot of information and enriches the democratic process. Yeah, that's exactly right. And um, what has been uh, really encouraging about the ACT election is that, um, as far as I understand, the political parties have actually allowed their candidates to fill out these forms themselves, which is which is a sort of perennial kind of problem. Um, yeah, because they tend to be risk averse during political parties tend to be risk averse during election campaigns, and they try and uh, sort of have a stock answer for all their for all their candidates. Exactly, and so at the last federal election, when we used Smart Vote, we found um, less variation amongst uh, lower house candidates, but we we did have a lot more variation amongst Senate candidates. So the voting advice application, particularly given there were like a billion candidates on the Senate ballot, especially if you did not live in the ACT, uh, it was very good to kind of navigate the sort of kaleidoscope of political parties to help you um, pick them out. Um, and I guess what is what the way the way Smart Vote tells you uh, where you are is that it has multiple dimensions, as as Mark alluded to, sort of social policy, economic policy, environmental policy, and it will essentially um, map those for you to look like a spider web, and you can you can effectively sort of see where you kind of match up uh, with candidates. And so, for example, uh, perhaps um, you might match up very closely with a candidate on social issues, but that might not be the thing you really care about. You mm. might match up more closely on um, economic issues. And so even though there might be slightly more variation between you and candidate B, for example, you care about those issues more and so you should be voting for candidate B, particularly in a situation like the ACT where um, there's actually more than one candidate running for each seat. So it's a multi-member district. So there are actually four Labor candidates to pick from or, or mm. however many it is. And so, and you know, not all Labor candidates or Liberal candidates are, are alike, are they? That's right. And it puts candidates, minor party and independent candidates, on a level playing field with party candidates. Exactly. Uh, you know, we know party candidates in Australian elections have a, a big advantage. They already have a presence in the marketplace. People are less interested in the individuals, more interested in the parties, particularly if they're loyal coalition or Labor voters or Greens voters or whatever. Uh, but what this does, if you fill it in, and you don't have to fill in every question either. There may be you may decide not to fill in some questions, which it factors in and understands that you don't wish to be mapped on that basis. And uh, or they may just be issues about which you have no interest and in, and 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 wouldn't turn you from a candidate to another anyway. Um, John, they're really it's really um, fascinating to look at these sorts of applications, particularly in light of. What we've seen has been a, a fairly steady erosion of loyalty in the major party blocks. Um, you know, from the old days when you know people voted one way because their parents did, and that you know that went down through the generations. That's breaking down now. We see more turbulence or more instability in the electoral system, and 
a thing like a VAA can give you a, a really interesting, um, uh, I suppose, exposure to all the different candidates and tell us a lot about what people are, um, what is actually making them vote in and uh, in elections and why. Yeah, it, it's an amazing exercise. I mean, I would recommend it to anyone um, in that it, it expands your vision of, of 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 the range of issues. I mean, the the 32 or 35 questions are only a small sample of, of you know, a hundred possible questions which might have might have been asked, and it shows you how wide the field of, of policy is um, for a voter um, approaching an election. So I think it's a great empowerment tool for voters. And as you said, at a time when party identification appears to be dropping away, and there's also dissatisfaction with centralised party machines and trust in government generally. So I think it throws a, a really important new tool uh, into the mix. It doesn't actually predict how you're going to vote. I mean, you might find that you line up with a particular candidate or with even with a particular party and you decide, no, for other reasons, I, uh, strategic reasons, I'm going to vote, put my vote elsewhere. But at least it, it expands the, the uh, options before you. Uh, when you're facing, go into the ballot box. And how those questions are d- designed is quite important, isn't it? We've put a lot of effort into um, into designing that questionnaire so that it it's not just a simple case of you know writing yes, yes, yes to a whole series. If you did that, it would, because of the way the questions have been asked and because they are designed to effectively reflect differences between the parties and the candidates, um, it, it's not just any old bunch of questions. It's a it's a very carefully designed process so that we can have that uh, spider web, as Maria described it, uh, drawn at the end. And some people might be quite fascinated. I say, I thought I was a Labor voter, but I'm actually a Liberal voter in this case. Yeah, that's entirely possible to sort of, to sort of happen. So in the case of the ACT uh, smart vote, the question set is a little bit different to what you might get at the federal election. You know, uh, public transport, for example, uh, features a bit more strongly in this one than it might yeah. say at federal election. And if you've been a lifelong uh, voter of any uh, colour, you might actually be surprised to know a bit more about that party that you've devoted your life to voting for and, and also a bit more about the other options, both the independent options and also the other party party options. Yeah, I mean, a good independent, theoretically, um, who may not have a lot of public profile but uh, believes he or she is very dialed into their local community may turn out to uh, attract quite a lot of support uh, from this process. You might never have heard of this person who's standing for mm. the seat of Brenda Bella or whatever it is. Um, you might not have heard of them, but it turns out that your attitudes and that person's match up better than anyone else's yeah. and that could be quite instrumental in the election and mm. that's to that extent it's quite enriching yeah. in the process and i think also like obviously this is you know the tool you guys have all developed but just hearing about it i think even on like a national level there's so much i guess confusion uh, among a lot of my i guess friends and so on it, when it's all the names all down on who is that who mm. is this i know maybe which way i probably vote but i don't know who that is and that is and that is and there's all these names on a sheet of paper that maybe if you're not really plugged in you don't actually know who anyone is mm. you don't know exactly what you're doing uh, you know in, in that sense and i think that's why these sorts of tools as you've mentioned this detail level of detail and sophistication you know for this 
this election coming up and at the territory level, but potentially sort of going forward where we need more of this detail because I think there's just people get quite overwhelmed and just see dozens and dozens of names maybe on a sheet of paper that they just go, oh, don't know, just going to just quickly do this, no clue, don't, don't really know what I think or what I think of any of these people. And so in that way I think the tool is really important and quite significant because of that. Yeah, particularly if, if you don't want to vote for a, a major party for your first vote for whatever reason mm. or, or at all, um, but um, it, it might be useful to work out if the Pirate Party or the Science Party or the, or the Party or, or, exactly, or the Sustainable Housing Party whose mm. names might seem indicatively attractive to you or the Hemp Party, um, but whose actually policy I've preferences are, <laughs> exactly, are, are completely insane or mm. completely on in, in line with what you're – with what you believe the direction that the ACT or the country should go in, mm. well, this is this is absolutely the the tool for you. It, it doesn't take very long either. I think you'll be you'll be done in about ten minutes. Yes, well, it's being led by Professors uh, Patrick Dumont and Ian McAllister uh, in the uh, School of Politics and International mm. Relations, and a number of others of us are involved as well. And would very strongly encourage you, if you are in the ACT, to to uh, get on and do that. Uh, it's uh, uh, being uh, promoted through, and and uh, it's accessible through the Canberra Times, and you know, very much an enriching uh, experience in democracy, and will provide us with uh, valuable research about. How people vote, what are the things that, uh, you know, form their, help them form their judgments about their vote. And probably in a, in a system of compulsory voting, there's a lot to be said for any sort of tool that, uh, says, okay, well, it's not just about showing up. There's, there's a little bit of quite easy research you can do here, which will provide you with a, you know, um, more than just uh, the sort of, uh, you know, the ability to cast a donkey vote, you know, just straight down the ticket or or to just go with what you did last time and feel unfulfilled about it. You may, in fact, say, look, I actually feel good about my vote this year because I did that, I worked out something that surprised me and I've cast a vote for something that I care about. And um, from a research point of view, that's going to be quite interesting because there's quite a literature about motivations for mm. for voters and um, this will be very instructive in adding to that. Can I thank you all for a really tremendous discussion today, Sarah Ison, Maria Teflaga, um, John Warhurst and uh, all of you listening today. It's been terrific to have you along as always. We'll be back with a uh, another Democracy Sausage next week and I'll be back uh, later in the week with a terrific discussion with Nick Bryant, the BBC correspondent to the US. He's written a, a wonderful new book uh, and uh, I think there's a fairly good chance I'll have a very high-profile guest interviewer with me to talk to Nick Bryant, um, assuming that we get all our ducks in a row and make this thing happen. Is but, it Tom uh, Hanks? I hope it's Tom Hanks. <laughs> no, but he is an American or at least he's an American by birth. And um, Nick Bryant's book is When America Stopped Being Great. I think it's the title of it. And it's uh, he's, he's actually got a PhD in in US in American uh, history. So he's, uh, he's a very well-researched uh, person, Nick Bryant. And uh, it's a fabulous book. Uh, and, of course, there's all eyes are on the US at the moment with, with, with uh, the election underway there and with seeming fraying of so many things uh, that um, that seemed solid before that are just sort of uh, deteriorating at the moment. So it's a fascinating um, subject and uh, we'll look forward to doing that interview and bringing it to you later in the week. Until then, bye for now. 